Chapter Eighteen of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen. The weather turned suddenly cold and raw that fall, and almost in one day the trees that had been green or yellowing in the sunshine put on their autumn garments of defeat, flaunted them for a brief hour, and dropped them early in despair. The pleasant woods to which Marcia had fled in her dismay became a mass of finely penciled branches against a wintry sky, save for the one group of tall pines that hung out heavy above the rest and seemed to defy even snowy blasts. Marcia could see those pines from her kitchen window, and sometimes as she worked, if her heart was heavy, she would look out and away to them, and think of the day she laid her head down beneath them to sob out her trouble and awoke to find comfort. Somehow the memory of that little talk that she and David had then grew into vast proportions in her mind, and she loved to cherish it. There had come letters from home. Her stepmother had written, a stiff, not unloving letter, full of injunctions to be sure to remember this and not do that, and on no account to let any relative or neighbor persuade her out of the ways in which she had been brought up. She was attempting to do as many mothers do, when they see the faults in the child they have brought up, try to bring them up over again. At some of the sentences a wild homesickness took possession of her. Some little homely phrase about one of the servants, or the mention of a pet hen or cow, could bring the longing tears to her eyes, and she would feel that she must throw away this new life and run back to the old one. School was begun at home. Marianne and Hanford would be taking the long walk back and forth together twice a day to the old schoolhouse. She half envied them their happy, carefree life. She liked to think of the shy courting that she had often seen between scholars in the upper classes. Her imagination pleased itself sometimes when she was going to sleep, trying to picture out the school goings and homecomings and their sober talk. Not that she ever looked back to Hanford Weston with regret, not she. She knew always that he was not for her, and perhaps, even so early as that in her new life, if the choice had been given her whether she would go back to her girlhood again and be as she was before Kate had run away, or whether she would choose to stay here in the new life with David, it is likely she would have chosen to stay. There were occasional letters from Squire Schuyler. He wrote of politics, and sent many messages to his son-in-law, which Marcia handed over to David at the tea-table to read, and which always seemed to soften David, and bring a sweet sadness into his eyes. He loved and respected his father-in-law. It was as if he were bound to him by the love of someone who had died. Marcia thought of that every time she handed David a letter, and sat and watched him read it. Sometimes little Harriet or the boys printed out a few words about the family cat or the neighbor's children, and Marcia laughed and cried over the poor little attempts at letters, and longed to have the eager childish faces of the writers to kiss. But in all of them there was never a mention of the bright, beautiful, selfish girl around whom the old home life used to center, and who seemed now, judging from the home letters, to be worse than dead to them all but since the afternoon upon the hill a new and pleasant intercourse had sprung up between David and Marcia. 
True, it was confined mainly to discussions of the new railroad, and possibilities of its success, and the construction of engines, tracks, etc. David was constantly writing up the subject for his paper, and he fell into the habit of reading his articles aloud to Marcia when they were finished. She would listen with breathless admiration, sometimes combating a point ably with the old vim she had used in her discussion over the newspaper with her father, but mainly agreeing with every word he wrote, and always eager to understand it down to the minutest detail. He always seemed pleased at her praise, and wrote on while she put away the tea-things with a contented expression, as though he had passed a high critic, and need not fear any other. Once he looked up with a quizzical expression, and made a jocose remark about our article, taking her into a sort of partnership with him in it, which set her heart to beating happily, until it seemed as if she were really, in some part at least, growing into his life. But after all, their companionship was a shy, distant one, more like that of a brother and sister who had been separated all their lives, and were just beginning to get acquainted, and ever there was a settled sadness about the lines of David's mouth and eyes. They sat around one table now, the evenings when they were at home, for there were still occasional tea-drinkings at their friends' houses, and there was one night a week held religiously for a formal supper with the aunts, which David kindly acquiesced in, more for the sake of his Aunt Clorinda than the others, whenever he was not detained by actual business. Then, too, there was the weekly prayer meeting held at early candlelight in the dim old shadowed church. They always walked down the twilighted streets together, and it seemed to Marcia there was a sweet solemnity about that walk. They never said much to each other on the way. David seemed preoccupied with holy thoughts, and Marcia walked softly beside him as if he had been the minister, looking at him proudly and reverently now and then. David was often called upon to pray in meeting, and Marcia loved to listen to his words. He seemed to be more intimate with God than the others, who were mostly old men, and prayed with long, rolling, solemn sentences that put the whole community down into the dust and ashes before their Creator. Marcia rather enjoyed the hour spent in the soberness of the church, with the flickering candlelight making grotesque forms of shadows on the wall and among the tall pews. The old minister reminded her of the one she had left at home, though he was more learned and scholarly, and when he had read the scripture passages, he would take his spectacles off and lay them across the great Bible, where the candlelight played at glances with the steel bows, and say, Let us pray. Then would come that soft stir and hush as the people took the attitude of prayer. Marcia sometimes joined in the prayer in her heart, uttering shy little petitions that were vague and indefinite, and had to do mostly with the days when she was troubled and homesick, and felt that David belonged wholly to Kate. Always her clear voice joined in the slow hymns that quavered out now and again, lined out to the worshippers. Marcia and David went out from the meeting down the street to their home, with the hush upon them that must have been upon the Israelites of old after they had been to the solemn congregation. But once David had come in earlier than usual, and had caught Marcia reading the Scottish chiefs, and while she started guiltily to be found thus employed, he smiled indulgently. After supper he said, 
Get your book, child, and sit down. I have some writing to do, and after it is done I will read to you. So after that, more and more often, it was a book that Marcia held in her hands in the long evenings when they sat together, instead of some useful employment, and so her education progressed. Thus she read Epictetus, Rasselas, The Deserted Village, The Vicar of Wakefield, Paradise Lost, The Mysteries of the Human Heart, Marshall's Life of Columbus, The Spy, The Pioneers, and The Last of the Mohicans. She had been asked to sing in the village choir, David sang a sweet high tenor there, and Marcia's voice was clear and strong as a blackbird's, with the plaintive sweetness of the wood-robins. Hannah Heath was in the choir also, and jealously watched her every move, but of this Marcia was unaware until informed of it by Miranda. With her inherited sweetness of nature she scarcely credited it, until one Sunday, a few weeks after the departure of Harry Temple, Hannah leaned forward from her seat among the altos and whispered quite distinctly, so that those around could hear, it was just before the service, I've just had a letter from your friend Mr. Temple. I thought you might like to know that his cousin got well, and that he has gone back to New York. He won't be returning here this year. On some accounts he thought it was better not." It was all said pointedly, with double emphasis upon the your friend and some accounts. Marcia felt her cheeks glow, much to her vexation, and tried to control her whisper to seem kindly as she answered indifferently enough. Oh, indeed, but you must have made a mistake. Mr. Temple is a very slight acquaintance of mine. I have met him only a few times, and I know nothing about his cousin. I was not aware even that he had gone away. Hannah raised her speaking eyebrows and replied, quite loud now, for the choir leader had stood up already with his tuning fork in hand, and one could hear it faintly twang, Indeed, using Marcia's own word and quite coldly, I should have thought differently from what Harry himself told me. And there was that in her tone which deepened the color in Marcia's cheeks, and caused it to stay there during the entire morning service, as she sat puzzling over what Hannah could have meant. It rankled in her mind during the whole day. She longed to ask David about it, but could not get up the courage. She could not bear to revive the memory of what seemed to be her shame. It was at the minister's donation party that Hannah planted another thorn in her heart, Hannah, in a green plaid silk with delicate undersleeves of lace and a tiny black velvet jacket. She selected a time when Lemuel was near, and when Aunt Amelia and Aunt Hortense, who believed that all the young men in town were hovering about David's wife, sat one on either side of Marcia, as if to guard her for their beloved nephew, who was discussing politics with Mr. Heath, and who never seemed to notice, so blind he was in his trust of her. So Hannah paused and posed before the three ladies, and with Lemuel smiling just at her elbow, began in her affected way. I've had another letter from New York, from your friend Mr. Temple. She said it with the slightest possible glance over her shoulder to get the effect of her words upon the faithful Lemuel. And he tells me he has met a sister of yours. By the way, 
she told him that David used to be very fond of her before she was married. I suppose she'll be coming to visit you now she's so near as New York. Two pairs of suspicious, steely eyes flew like stinging insects to gaze upon her, one on either side, and Marcia's heart stood still for just one instant, but she felt that here was her trying time, and if she would help David and do the work for which she had become his wife, she must protect him now from any suspicions or disagreeable tongues. By very force of will she controlled the trembling of her lips. My sister will not likely visit us this winter, I think, she replied as coolly as if she had had a letter to that effect that morning, and then she deliberately looked at Lemuel Skinner and asked if he had heard of the offer of prizes of four thousand dollars in cash that the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad had just made for the most approved engine delivered for trial before June 1st, 1831, not to exceed three and a half tons in weight and capable of drawing, day by day, fifteen tons, inclusive of weight of wagons, fifteen miles per hour. Lemuel looked at her blankly and said he had not heard of it. He was engaged in thinking over what Hannah had said about a letter from Harry Temple. He cared nothing about railroads. The second prize is $3,500, stated Marcia eagerly, as though it were of the utmost importance to her. Are you thinking of trying for one of the prizes? sneered Hannah, piercing her with her eyes, and now indeed the ready color flowed into Marcia's face. Her ruse had been detected. If I were a man and understood machinery, I believe I would. What a grand thing it would be to be able to invent a thing like an engine that would be of so much use to the world, she answered bravely. They are most dangerous machines, said Aunt Amelia, disapprovingly. No right-minded Christian who wishes to live out his life his creator has given him would ever ride behind one. I have heard that boilers always explode. They are most unnecessary, said Aunt Hortense severely, as if that settled the question for all time and all railroad corporations. But Marcia was glad for once of their disapproval, and entered most heartily into a discussion of the pros and cons of engines and steam, quoting largely from David's last article for the paper on the subject, until Hannah and Lemuel moved slowly away. The discussion served to keep the aunts from inquiring further that evening about the sister in New York. Marcia begged them to go with her into the kitchen and see the store of good things that had been brought to the minister's house by his loving parishioners. Bags of flour and meal, pumpkins, corn in the ear, and nice little pats of butter a great wooden tub of doughnuts, baskets of apples and quinces, pounds of sugar and tea, barrels of potatoes, whole hams, a side of pork, a quarter of beef, hanks of yarn, and strings of onions. It was a goodly array. Marcia felt that the minister must be beloved by his people. She watched him and his wife as they greeted their people, and wished she knew them better and might come and see them sometimes, and perhaps eventually feel as much at home with them as with her own dear minister. She avoided Hannah during the remainder of the evening. When the evening was over and she went upstairs to get her wraps from the high four-poster bedstead, she had almost forgotten Hannah and her ill-natured, prying remarks. 
but Hannah had not forgotten her. She came forth from behind the bed curtains where she had been searching for a lost glove, and remarked that she should think Marcia would be lonely this first winter away from home, and want her sister with her a while. But the presence of Hannah always seemed a natural stimulus to the spirit of Marcia. Oh, I'm not in the least lonely, she laughed merrily. I have a great many interesting things to do, and I love music and books. Oh, yes, I forgot you are very fond of music. Harry Temple told me about it, said Hannah. Again there was that disagreeable hint of something more behind her words that aggravated Marcia almost beyond control. For an instant a cutting reply was upon her lips, and her eyes flashed fire. Then it came to her how futile it would be, and she caught the words in time and walked swiftly down the stairs. David, watching her come down, saw the admiring glances of all who stood in the hall below, and took her under his protection with a measure of pride in her youth and beauty that he did not himself at all realize. All the way home he talked with her about the new theory of railroad construction, quite contented in her companionship, while she, poor child, much perturbed in spirit, wondered how he would feel if he knew what Hannah had said. David fell into a deep study with a book and his papers about him after they had reached home. Marcia went up to her quiet, lonely chamber, put her face in the pillow, and thought and wept and prayed. When at last she lay down to rest, she did not know anything she could do but just go on living day by day and helping David all she could. At most there was nothing to fear for herself, save a kind of shame that she had not been the first sister chosen, and she found to her surprise that that was growing to be deeper than she had supposed. She wished as she fell asleep that her girl dreams might have been left to develop and bloom like other girls, and that she might have had a real lover, like David in every way, yet of course not David because he was Kate's but a real lover who would meet her as David had done that night when he had thought she was Kate, and speak to her tenderly. One afternoon, David, being wearied with an unusual round of taxing cares, came home to rest and study up some question in his library. Finding the front door fastened, and remembering that he had left his key in his other pocket, he came around to the back door, and much preoccupied with thought, went through the kitchen and nearly to the hall before the unusual sounds of melody penetrated to his ears. He stopped for an instant amazed, forgetting the piano, then comprehending he wondered who was playing. Perhaps some visitor was in the parlor. He would listen and find out. He was weary and dusty with the soil of the office upon his hands and clothes. He did not care to meet a visitor, so under cover of the music he slipped into the door of his library across the hall from the parlor and dropped into his great armchair. Softly and tenderly stole the music through the open door, all about him, like the gentle dropping of some tender psalms or comforting chapter in the Bible to an aching heart. It touched his brow like a soft soothing hand and seemed to know and recognize all the agonies his heart had been passing through and all the weariness his body felt. He put his head back and let it float over him and rest him. Tinkling brooks and gentle zephyrs, waving of forest trees and twitterings of birds, 
calm lazy clouds floating by a sweetness in the atmosphere bells far away lowing herds music of the angels high in heaven the soothing strain from each extracted and brought to heal his broken heart it fell like a dew upon his spirit then like a fresh breeze with zest and life borne on came a new strain grand and fine and high calling him to better things he did not know it was a strain of handel's music grown immortal but his spirit recognized the higher call commanding him to follow and straightway he felt strengthened to go onward in the course he had been pursuing old troubles seemed to grow less anguish fell away from him he took new lease of life nothing seemed impossible then she played by ear one or two of the old tunes they sang in church touching the notes tenderly and almost making them speak the words it seemed a benediction suddenly the playing ceased and marcia remembered it was nearly supper time he met her in the doorway with a new look in his eyes a look of high purpose and exultation he smiled upon her and said that was good child i did not know you could do it you must give it to us often marcia felt a glow of pleasure in his kindliness albeit she felt that the look in his eyes set him apart and above her and made her feel the child she was she hurried out to get the supper between pleasure and a nameless unrest she was glad of this much but she wanted more a something to meet her soul and satisfy End of chapter 18